If you'd open your Bibles this week, please, to the book of Matthew. We're going to take a break from Galatians, and I'd like you to open up to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to be reading verses 14 through 21. Um, By the way, Dave Carell and his family are down in, uh, well, actually, they're right near Sony's Barbecue, uh, which is a place I know where it is because I love to eat at Sony's Barbecue um, in Corbin, Kentucky. They took a weekend off and uh, Stephen Baker has left his family here, uh, I think. Yeah, there he is. And he's up in Toledo at our sister church. Um, so that's where our pastors are. Let's read together Matthew 12:14 to 21. I'll read it out loud because you use different translations, but let's follow along. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will help. Now, unless I'm mistaken, that's everybody here except Bob. Do we have any other person of Jewish descent here? Oh, yes, Bob and Jen. And funny thing, they're both from the New York metro area. Anybody else? So this is a special text for us, isn't it? Because what it says is that in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, in order to understand a text, you've got to get the context, right? So what's the context for this text? Well, there's, there's reason to my madness. I want to read the context after I read our text so that you see what the but comes out of. Look at verse 14, but. Now, what happened? Well, if you look above at verse 10, you'll see what immediately preceded this. In verse 10, it says, And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Sounds like a trick question, right? Sounds like Jeff Ewer's question, right? I don't know the answer to the question. I listened. So you can go up to Jeff afterwards and say, I don't know, Jeff. What's the answer? Well, here the answer is clearly what? The answer is clearly what? What's the answer? Well, yeah, it's yes and no. (laughs) I'm a good postmodernist. The answer is no to the Pharisees, and that's why they're asking the question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then, in case you wondered what the right answer was to the people asking the question, you have a clear statement by the Holy Spirit through Matthew immediately afterwards, where he says what? In order that what? They might accuse him. So it's very, very clear what's going on here. This is a trap, and uh, Jesus is supposed to take the bait, and then they'll hang him. All right? 
So Jesus responds and says to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, this is a question that my wife doesn't like the expression, but this is a question that any idiot knows the answer to. The answer is obviously yes. He will take hold of it and lift it out, even though it's on the Sabbath, if it's fallen in a pit. And then Jesus says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, did you just sort of... Did you just sort of jump right over that statement, how much more valuable? This is the answer to the current cultural infatuation with lifting animals into a position of being species equal with man. They're not. And this is a part of confessing the Christian faith. Only man has had the image of God put in him. Now, this doesn't mean that you all have to eat meat. Okay? But it does mean that if some of you don't eat meat because you think that animals have as many rights as humans do and it's speciesism to eat meat, you have to repent because the Bible says that God has dealt with us in a way entirely different than the animals. And if you say that this means that Christians are cruel to animals, have no respect for animals, don't care about animals, you're wrong. Because the Bible says in Jonah that... You know, after Jonah was complaining that Nineveh repented, God said to him, you know, where do you get off? Shouldn't I care about the many people that live in Nineveh, not to mention the animals? So there are many things, you know, a sparrow doesn't fall without God knowing. And so what we see here is that Jesus, in an incidental throw-off comment, he likens this man with the withered head to a sheep, but he doesn't let you go and get into this vegan, you know, speciesism thing. He says, and, you know, a man is worth a lot more. He actually explicitly says this. And this is one of the reasons why when we look at India, um, we think that part of the solution to India is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what this does is this changes our understanding of animals. It doesn't make us not honor them, but it does make us realize that God himself revealed that the animals are given to us for our food. All right. And so he says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus says to them, look, any of you, if your wealth, and for us it would be our car, You know, if your car, except it's not quite the same because you can leave a car for a night and it's not really going to hurt it. You know what I'm saying? Whereas a sheep stuck in the ditch, you know, the sheep could get wacko. A car doesn't get wacko. It just sits there, right? Um, And so Jesus says, look, if it was your sheep, you'd lift it out. In other words, he's calling them hypocrites, right? He's saying, come on, you guys. You'd do it for your animal. Why wouldn't you do it for a man? What's wrong with me healing this man with a withered hand? Um, Now, following this public confrontation, we see two opposite responses. And it's a clue to you that there are two opposite responses with the use of the the word but. Now, the first but appears in verse 14 where it says, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, why were they responding to the healing of a man with a withered hand by going out and counseling together as to how they could destroy Christ. Why? 
We're a small group this morning. So take a risk. Tell me why. Why? No answer is wrong until I say it is. It's a joke. Why? It made them look bad. How did it make them look bad? Yeah, and and it also pointed out something beyond that they didn't have mercy. What else did it point out? It made clear that they didn't understand the law, but there was something else there. It's they're selfish. There's something else there. Huh? Yeah, it it is making it clear. Yeah, that's getting closer. Yes, Dolores. I can't hear you, dear. He did reveal his authority. That that's interesting. I had not thought of that. Yeah, he did reveal his authority. Look, this authority aside, because that might be the central. But I would say a central thing here is what it begins with the with the letter H. It's hypocrisy. When you're sitting there trying to slip the noose over his head. There's a man there with a withered hand. And you're trying to catch him. And he says, come on, you guys. If you had your sheep fall into a ditch on the Sabbath, and you're completely humiliated. That's the Monty Python. Yes, well, that's where my argument falls to the ground. I was certainly hoping you wouldn't make that particular point, but I can see that you're more than a match for me. But they didn't have the humility to say it. Instead, what they did is, and it begins with the word but, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him how they might silence him. Now, is that what the text says? Is that what the text says? Okay, I'll read it again. It says, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might silence him. Doesn't that seem just a little bit imbalanced and kind of out of proportion? I mean, here's this dude with a withered hand. (laughs) You know, they heal his hand and they say, you must die. I mean, even if you have a very high view of the Sabbath, would you kill a man for that? And that's where I think Dolores might well be right. You know, it's, it's not simply their hypocrisy, their jealousy, everything we mentioned, but he is an authority. Now, here's the crapshoot. How big of an authority is he? You know that Dylan song, when they came for him in the garden, did they believe? Starts out with the little things and it keeps going up a step. When he rose from the dead, did they believe? When he said, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth, did they really know what that power was worth? You know, the Pharisees have no idea that they're out of their league. They're like a little Babe Ruth league team going in and playing, uh, well, after last night, playing the Cardinals. (laughs) Well, maybe you could say they're like the Tigers playing the Cardinals. Um, They're out of their league. But they think they have everything under control, don't they? There's no fear on the part of the Pharisees, is there? What oozes from them? Pride. What does the Bible say about pride? 
The Bible says that God resists the proud. Every time I see these dances after a score in a, in a soccer game or a football game, it's not enough to say I don't like them. I cringe. I fear for them. It's not that I don't like them. It's that it's so wrong and it teaches everybody something that's so wrong. Because God resists the proud. And America says, unless you're proud, nobody will know you exist and you won't get ahead. You know, that's one of the problems with you who sing. You know, I remember Dawn coming to me when she was in the opera school and saying to me, well, you know, it's suddenly come to me that opera, don't worry, I'm not saying that none of you can do opera. Please give me a little room to work. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. She came to me and she said, you know, everything about my life in opera is self-promotion. I can't handle it. I'm going to leave singing. And she didn't. And I didn't counsel her to leave. But, you know, you think about sports stars, movie stars. You think about being in the music school and playing. And, you know, you think about interviewing if you're getting a degree um, the Pharisees had had their position usurped. Their specialty was the law. They were very, very good at using the law to trap people and to make themselves great and other people lousy. And so they used the tool they knew how to use to try to get Jesus. And Jesus slipped the noose. And Jesus walked on them. So they, thinking that they were still in control because, you know, their mother didn't need to worry about their self-esteem, thought, we'll destroy him. Did they know what that power was worth? Did they know that he was the son of God? Now, that's the first but. What's the second but? Look at verse 15, but Jesus. Now, if you've got all the authority and all the power and all the strength of the world arrayed against you, nobody gives a rip about you, the cops are giving you tickets, the school teachers are giving you Fs, your father doesn't know you exist, your husband's left you, you know, everything's gone wrong, you know, what are you going to do? Say, well, I think I'll just shrink back in a hole and, and act like I'm not in the world. Some, yes, but some of us would say, we'd yell at the top of our lungs, here I am, I am woman, hear me roar into numbers too big to ignore. You know, in other words, some people respond by hiding themselves to this kind of oppression and attack. Some people respond by getting aggressive. Right? Like, for instance, generally, the male sex, generally, again, give me room to work, Generally, the male sex responds because of a certain hormone they have, which I won't mention. All right. Generally, women respond differently. Like, for instance, take David Abisara. Stand up. That's what you get for sitting up front. Turn around. Now, how will this man respond? Okay, sit down. (laughs) Now, think of David and then multiply him infinitely infinitely. By his word, the universe holds together. 
He created everything that exists. This is the one that the Pharisees are attacking. Do you understand this? This is not a guy with buff, big shoulders, was married and so is going a little bit to seed. This is the creator of the universe. How should he respond? It's completely unjust. The Bible says God resists the proud. Look at how Jesus responds. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He didn't get the last word, did he? And many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to make him known. So knowing their plans to destroy him, Jesus did not go on the offensive. Instead, we're told he withdrew from there. He backed out of the conflict. As he withdrew, still the people followed him. And the people were the sheep, right? They're not the false shepherds. They're the sheep. The people followed him and he healed all those who had perfect faith and who gave money to, um, what's his name, dude? Uh, Oral Roberts, you know, who sent money into the Trinity Broadcasting Network as an expression of their faith, and so God rewarded them sending money in by healing them. You know, it's really interesting that it says that he healed all of them. How many of them that came to Jesus with problems do you think came with doubt and unbelief? Let me ask a different way. If you had been there and you had had a withered hand, would your faith have been perfect? Would you have been fearful? Would you have been fearful that you would be the one person that he'd say, that's not going to take? And the Bible says that he healed all of them, all of them. And you know in that group, there had to be a ton of them that had very, very weak faith. Do you remember the guy on the cot? He couldn't walk. Do you remember what his friends did? They brought him up to the roof and they like dug the roof out and then they lowered him down, right? Only men can truly relate to this. You know, to a man, forget the house. We've got a friend. You know, they let this dude down and what does Jesus say? Now, how much faith did that guy in the cot have? Do you know that it was the faith of the friends that healed him? You know, sometimes I listen to your stories and I hear often about your grandmother. And I hear you tell me that your grandmother has prayed for you. It's not your faith, is it? And really, if you ask yourself why your grandmother prays for you, why is it? It's not her faith either. Because faith is a, and you all know to answer immediately, a what? Faith is a gift. So the faith comes from God. The faith comes to whom? Your grandmother. The faith is exercised by your grandmother. And you come back from slopping pigs. And you can't talk about your grandmother, really, because God gave her the gift of faith. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to make him known. But, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. But 
Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to make him known. So on the one hand, you have the muckety-mucks, the grand poobahs, the, the proud, legalistic religious leaders. And on the other hand, you have the sheep. And you have Jesus in the middle. And he knows if he heals this man with a withered hand. Now, it's one thing to take a baby into your arms and to bless it. The disciples say, get him away from here. And you take the baby into your arms and you bless it. And everybody goes, goo, goo, ga, ga. But nobody ever has asked to spend time with a man with a withered hand. Right? You see a guy with a withered hand and it's like embarrassing. You know, it's kind of like standing next to Bob and having him say something to you. On the one hand, you love Bob. But on the other hand, you can't understand him. And so it's just kind of embarrassing. And you don't want to embarrass him. One time he came in and I, uh, because it was a private matter, I didn't have translators with me. Uh, in other words, the men were in the house. And so I wish this thing would let me put my hand in my pocket. And so um, I think I asked Bob eight different times to repeat a very short thing he said. Right, Bob? I think he said, yep. That's easy, though. Wait until he tries to say to you, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> That's where you get in trouble and you have no context for it. <laughs> you know. And after the eight times, I said, Bob, does this embarrass you? Do you get mad at me? And he said, no. And I loved him. I mean, you know, eight times. Okay. Say something to me. Just say something. Anything. You like my haircut. What? What? That's three, all right. What? 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 And these were the people that Jesus hung with. You know, people that you had to say it eight times in a row. Now, let's... Read the rest of the story. He healed them all, verse 15, 16, and he warned them not to make him known. Verse 17, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. So there's a purpose statement here, and the purpose statement is that the reason that he did not engage the Pharisees when they went out to plot to kill him. He did not have friends write letters to the editor defending him for healing on the Sabbath. He didn't engage in you know, writing the 95 theses and putting them up on the door so that he could protect himself. But he went away. All the, all the, all the smoldering wicks and all the bruised reeds went away with him. And he healed them all. He told them not to say anything to anyone. And then it says... 
in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. So in other words, this is God saying, This is my servant. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Can you imagine how pleased God was with his son? Can you imagine how pleased you'd be to watch maybe through a window of your child's classroom and to see your child hanging with the person that's got a withered hand in the class and paying particular attention to them. And then it says, I will put my spirit upon him, the father says about the son, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's impossible, I think, for us as Americans to even understand what a smoldering wick and what a bruised reed is today. Because taken corporately, nationalistically as a nation, we are the Pharisees. We are the ones who pride is our nickels. We are proud, we're rich, we're fat, we're, we're powerful. We have the Navy, we have the Air Force, we have the Army, we have the nuclear bombs, and anyone else that gets them is wrong. We've used them, and anybody else that uses them is wrong. And so... We read a text like this, and it's really hard to engage it. He shall proclaim what? What does it say? He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed, a bruised reed, he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, let me ask you, do you hope in Jesus? And if you answer yes, then I'm going to ask you, in what way? How do you hope for Jesus? How do you hope in Jesus? And if you answer, well, that, I'll, that, that, that I can go to heaven. And I'd say, yes, that's true. How else do you hope in Jesus? And then I'm going to ask you this. Do any of you, any of you, any of us hope in the justice being established by Jesus. And I think if you're like me at that point, you think, well, you know, what kind of justice? Well, like, for instance, how about the farmers in India who, it's not me this time because I put it in another pocket, Um, The farmers in India who have been granted uh, free access to water underneath uh, their property and have no obligation to not completely empty the aquifers and uh, who say about themselves that uh, when their neighbor with a farm bores his well down another five feet that he begins to steal from their aquifer and so they bore theirs down seven feet and they have to keep boring deeper and deeper and deeper and then you know what they do with the water? They don't use it for the rice. You know what they do with it? They put it into a truck and take it to the slums and sell it to the people that have nothing. 
India's government says we'll provide water. I forget how many liters per day for our people. But you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that they have no obligation to provide water to people in the slums because the slums aren't legitimate communities. Do you care? Do you care? Or is that just something that Bill and Melinda Gates are supposed to care about? And so, you know, everybody in the government, everybody in, you know, natural resources, everybody in in water, uh, they know that this is an abuse of their privileges on the part of the farmers. It's practiced all over the country. It's written up. Everybody says it's true. They know it's happening. And what happens? Nothing happens. And so people in India, temperatures of 110, 115 degrees, the, the, the women have to sit in the streets with their little buckets waiting hour after hour after hour after hour. And when a truck finally shows up, they have to fight with each other. And they estimate that approximately 40% of the, of the water in India is lost because of leaks in the pipes. And do you care? How popular would it be to go take on the rich farmers? It wouldn't be popular. You wouldn't get elected, would you? Now, I'm choosing India because it's safe, and we can all feel self-righteous about India. We're all prophets at a distance. But what about this country? What about the place where they kill children in this city? You know, we had Jim in a class. They were talking about, I don't remember what it was, and they asked Jim what he thought. He didn't volunteer. They asked him what he thought. And Jim spoke up and referred to the abortuary. And and was it, Jim, where are you? Was it the professor or was it somebody in the class that asked, what what do you mean an abortuary? It was the professor. And Jim said, well, go ahead, tell them. Planned Parenthood where they kill children. And Jim spent the next weeks trying to keep the School of Education, from removing him from his program. Jim, the real problem was the tone of voice. But of course, it's a joke. I'm being facetious. I'm making a joke. The real problem is not Jim's tone of voice. Now, what his professor ended up saying is, Jim, you're arrogant. Isn't that a word that frequently comes to your mind about Jim? (laughs) He's so arrogant. You know, I especially feel how arrogant Jim is when he kneels down when we have our prayer of confession in front of us all. I mean, how arrogant is that? I have no defenses against Jim Hoke. None. I'd follow him into deepest, darkest caves. I'd do anything for Jim. Why? Because he isn't arrogant. And so we look at justice and we look at, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking wick he will not put out, he will establish justice. And what we want to do is we want to make it a very personal statement to us and our weakness and our need. Do you understand this? But we don't want to see it outside of ourselves. We don't want to see that once we become a follower of Jesus Christ, His calling is our calling. 
We don't live for ourselves anymore. We take up our cross. That means we stand for the guy with the withered hand. That means even when we know that the person who's asked us the question is just waiting to pounce on us, when we heal the man with the withered hand, we heal him. Because the project of God, the project of the Father, the project of the Son, the project of the Holy Spirit, the project of the Apostles becomes the project of the men and women of God. Do you understand this? We are not individualistic, me and Jesus Christians. There never has been such a creature. Never. Do you understand what I'm saying? You are not powerless, voiceless. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. That, after all, is what the meaning of the Great Commission is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? The very end. What does it say? It says what? I am with you always. Now, does that seem like you're weak? It isn't. Yes, you are weak. Jesus was weak when he went out in the wilderness because obviously he wasn't where the seat of power was. He was out in the wilderness. And he obviously wasn't with the people that were powerful. He was with the the guys with the shriveled hands and and the women that had an issue of blood and, and the people that were hungry and he fed them. The sheep without a shepherd. And he had all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, what's the application to us? Well, first, the application that I'm making right now, which is, people, you can't throw out discernment. You can't say, well, isn't that a nice statement about Jesus, that he doesn't break a bruised reed and he doesn't put out smoking flax. That's so nice, you know. I can appropriate that. I feel like a bruised reed this morning. Hold on, hold on. But first you must recognize the difference between a real bruised reed and a real uh, wick that's about to go out on the one hand, and on the other hand, what? A Pharisee who is filled with pride and who is oppressing the bruised reed and the smoking wick. And make no mistake about how Jesus deals with those Pharisees. Now, it may be that God doesn't call you to be the one who says no to the Pharisees. You know, some of us, that's not our calling. But your heart should belong to those whose calling it is to say no to the Pharisees. And you should be praying for them and you should never, ever, ever rebuke them for having the Pharisees mad at them. I mean, isn't it ironic? When I was at UW-Madison, you'd go down to Library Mall. If any of you know what I'm talking about, Library Mall, nobody. Well, Library Mall is the very center of UW. There is no center of IU. The closest I think you can come to is uh, Sample Gates, but I mean, it's not a community center. Library Mall, everybody hung out there. It was big, no traffic. That's where you hung out. The union here, the library here, you know, the businesses here, it just created a community there. And you'd have these preachers who would come to Library Mall and You know, some of them were good, some not so good, but it was the gospel often. And you know who the people that hated the most were? Christians. Christians who were too cool. Christians who knew better how to spread the gospel. Christians who were so busy protecting their influence, they had none. 
So these guys would come. One guy came. He's preaching. It's huge crowd around him, 200 or so people. And at that time, we had a guy that used to be here at, uh, in Bloomington. I forget his name, but he was the head of the pail and shovel party. And the way he ran was he put pictures of his opponents and the administrators up on the side of the library on Library Mall. And he and his vice president candidate had little um, plastic uh, buckets filled with mud. And they'd put shovels, little toy shovels in the buckets, fill them with mud and throw them at the pictures of their opponents. And that was why they were called the pail and shovel party. These are the same guys that built out of paper mache the, the, the Statue of Liberty and put it when the lake was frozen. You've seen those pictures in books of pranks. Part of their platform was that they'd bring the Statue of Liberty to Lake Mendota. And so one morning I got there and it's frozen and on top of Lake Mendota is the Statue of Liberty only from here up, you know. But it's full size. So this guy's with his vice president. They're down there around this preacher, right? And the preacher is preaching. And do you know what they did? They brought a little children's wagon with them. They had it loaded up with eggs, and they began to pelt him with eggs. Now, have you ever been hit by an egg that's thrown hard at you? Any of you? You've gotten hit by an egg? How does it feel, Kyle? Huh? Does it hurt? Yeah. And you're a man, right? And you wrestle, right? And it hurts. Okay. You know who was watching it? A police officer. You know what he was doing? Laughing. They then went up and picked this man up from behind and began shaking him in the air as he was preaching. And the police officer laughed louder. You know what the Christians in that campus said about that man? Basically, they said he got what he deserved. Man, I thought he was wonderful. What do you think you would have said when you watched the Apostle Paul arrive in your city? You know, do you think you would have thought, what a glorious orator? (laughs) No, no, no. You would have been embarrassed by him. And you would have been relieved when he was let out the back of the wall in a basket. Because then the blood pressure of the town would have gone down. So the very beginning here, you have to be able to distinguish between the proud who oppress God's people, who oppress his servant, who oppress those who have an eye for the man with the bruised or with the uh, with the shriveled hand, the bruised reeds and the smoking wicks. And you have to be on the side of and support and not turn away in shame for the one that's exposed them when they go out and plot his death. You know, we, we, I think we think that because they had diseases and stuff that they all needed something from Jesus. So the only reason they left with Jesus was because they, 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 he had something that they wanted. But I don't think that's true. I think they identified with Jesus because they'd been being dissed their entire lives by the religious leaders. And they knew Jesus was righteous and they loved him. And yes, incidentally, they also had all their diseases healed. They loved Jesus. If you're unwilling to make distinctions in this world between those who have pride for a necklace and who will not bow the knee to God and those who are bruised reeds and smoking flax, then you will never 
minister to the bruised reeds and smoking flax. Because you'll never recognize them. So you have to start there. Calvin, I want to read on this. He says this. He says, the example of Christ, this example, instructs all his ministers, that would be your elders, your pastors, instructs all his ministers in what manner they ought to conduct themselves. But as there are some who falsely and absurdly maintain that mildness ought to be exercised indiscriminately towards all. Okay? We must attend to the distinction that the prophet expressly makes between wicked and weak persons. Those who are far too stubborn need to have their stubbornness, what? (laughs) Beaten violently. (laughs) I mean, come on, nobody wants Calvin to write that. Nobody wants Jesus to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You go across heaven and earth to win a single convert, and then you turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourselves, you hypocrites. Nobody wants Jesus to say that, except those who love justice and mercy and those who love the bruised reed and the smoking flax. Those who are too stubborn need to have their hardness beaten violently with a hammer. (laughs) And today he'd probably write sledgehammer, you know. And those who endeavor to spread darkness in every direction or who act as torches to kindle bonfires must have their smoke dispelled and their flame extinguished. A smoking wick he will not put out. Those who are doing this as an action of pride and oppression and injustice need to have their wick put out. All right. While the faithful ministers of the word ought to endeavor to spare the weak and thus to cherish and increase that portion of the grace of God, however small which they possess, they must also exercise prudent caution lest they encourage the obstinate malice of those who have no resemblance to the smoking lamp or bruised reed. You understand? The life of a believer is a life of making distinctions. The thing that I get more opposition to in anything else that I do in public is the fencing of this table. People hate it. And why? Because we're postmodern, we hate distinctions, and we want everything to be for everybody. But look, baptism and the Lord's Supper make distinctions. And if you hate distinctions... Either you're very, very in need of teaching biblically or you don't know God because God makes distinctions. And if you haven't learned anything else from the book of Revelation, understand that the day will come when those who belong to God will be welcomed into his kingdom and those who don't will be cast into the lake of fire. And we're to live in such a way as to give testimony to these things in our lives. So what are the bruised reeds and the smoking flax? Well, um, uh, Anna's not here now, is she? We have a woman in our small group named Anna who plays an oboe. And you do you play an oboe too? Okay. Viola? Piano. Okay, it's brain, sorry. Bassoon, yeah, but I don't know anything about the reeds of bassoons except they're not as big a pain as the oboes are. But she would ask for prayer week after week after week that God would make her able to make her oboe reeds. And she just couldn't get it. And so what? A defective reed is no good for playing. 
All right. It's just no good. Now, the rest of us know this from picking off a blade of grass and putting it in between our thumbs. And we hold it up to our mouth and we blow on it. And about how long can it last? Four seconds? Eight? Not much longer. What happens? Well, it gets shredded by the vibrations and it gets wet and shredded. Because you're breaking down what? The cells? I don't know. I'm not a biologist or what plant physiologist or whatever it is. But it breaks down completely and then you have to throw it out and you have to pick another piece of grass and put it between your thumbs and start blowing again, right? Now, if you take that piece of grass after you've blown on it and you've bruised it and you hold it up, what happens before what would happen? It would stand up straight like this, right? After you've blown on it and bruised it, it just goes... It can't stand up, all right? And what about a smoking wick? Well, a smoking wick is one that's like down, 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 so far down that even the movement of your hand to take the handle can put it out. So, you know, could you come up with things that are weaker? A bruised reed, a smoking wick that you have to be more careful in how you deal with. This is what the Bible says Jesus has his attention taken up with. Now, you can see this physically. There are some people who you look at them and their bodies say, I'm a bruised reed. You've known people who walk with their heads over like this. And you've known some of them. It's because they have absolutely nothing but self-abnegation, humility, brokenness. And that's why they walk. Sometimes it's a physical malady. You've known people, you look at their faces, and their faces are just completely hopeless. You've known women who, you know if you bring up a subject, the minute you bring it up, she's going to be crying. And the whole thing about tears with women is, 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 is one of femininity's greatest weaknesses. Women hate it when they cry. Why? They can't control it. It's a real gift, let me tell you, to us husbands. It pulls us back from a lot of things we shouldn't do. So be thankful that God's given you the gift of tears. But it's a weak gift, isn't it? It's a very weak gift. You think of men who are not able to talk like Bob, not able to walk. You think of Terry who's, uh, where are you? There you are. Her whole body is racked by susceptibility to infections, uh, an inability to get up and around. She's dependent. Now, those are the obvious ones. What about the ones that aren't obvious? Well, what about you and your sin? You think, oh, no, it's communion again today. You know, I can't come to that table. I have not done this and I haven't done this and I did do this. And, you know, it's the 37,000th week that I did that and I've repented, but he can't forgive me again. And so I'm not going to take communion this week because I'm a bruised reed and a smoking wick. And I'm going to wait until I'm a nice, strong flame next week. (laughs) And the Bible says what? The Bible says that Jesus comes and that he does not break a bruised reed and that he does not put out smoking
so. What are you? There's no shame in being a bruised reed and a smoking wick. There's none at all. It's who Jesus came for. And it's what I am. It's what you are. And you say, oh, yeah, right, you're not. I say, trust me. Ask my wife. Ask my son. So, it's a perfect lead-in to say, who takes the communion? Who takes it? Well, let's start by saying, who doesn't take it, even though you're going to hate me for this. If you're the child whose mother has sent you to the room and said, don't come out until you're ready to obey, and you went to the room and you slammed the door and will not come out, you may not come to this table. Now, doesn't that make sense? Why? Because your heart is hard against God. Did you read up on the wall where it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart? If he calls you to repent, repent. Did you read that? And so if you're slamming the door and you're sitting in your room and you've got a stiff neck and an arched back and it's like, you know, hell's going to freeze over before you're going to humble yourself. Don't come to the table because God says he resists the proud. And one of the ways he resists the proud is that when you come to this table with pride and rebellion, God says in his word that that's why some of you are sick and others of you have fallen asleep, died. And you say, whoa. And I say, look, I'm just repeating scripture. That's all. That's what I'm supposed to do. Don't come here proud. But if you're a bruised reed and you say, I sin for the 37 millionth time this week, the same sin, wilt thou forgive that sin which I repented of once but wallowed in a score of years? When thou hast done, thou hast not done. I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin that I made others? It was their door. I led them into the same sin. And the Bible says, come. So if you're, a, if you're a bruised reed, you're a smoking flax, and you feel very weak, and you feel you are not worthy of this table, I would say to you, you are worthy of this table if you come to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus without pride... And if you come to him, not plotting how you can kill him, but unashamed of taking him as your Lord and Savior, at your work, at your home, with your husband, your wife, your children, with the people that you work with, and you say, but I am ashamed. And I say, oh, that's too bad. Then you can't come. Is that right? No. You say to the Lord, Lord, I'm ashamed. And he says, I'm not ashamed of calling you my son. Lord, give me courage. He says, I'll give you courage. If your shame is an idol, don't come. If you're resistant. I don't know the words, but let's sing that hymn.